The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. This callous coward with a gun in his hand shot a cop in the head tonight. My heart grieves for Detective Sean Souter. It's no way that I would think if you're a good partner that you're going to lose sight of me. Now, if they thought at the smallest level that it involved police officers tied to their case, there's no way they would have given that case back. Listen, after a case gets 72 hours old, it gets cold. If you don't do something in 72 hours, you really have a problem. Welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved, the podcast that explores both the evidence and the politics of unsolved cases. We've been exploring and investigating the unexplained death of Baltimore homicide detective Sean Souter. Souter was found shot in the head with his own gun in a West Baltimore alley. Police initially said Souter was shot by a black assailant from the community. But that story soon fell apart, and soon new information emerged, including the fact that Souter was scheduled to appear in front of a federal grand jury the day before he died. The testimony was related to a 2010 case which involved an attempted robbery by Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, one of the members of the Gun Trace Task Force, and Souter. The robbery led to an accident which killed the 86-year-old father of a Baltimore police officer and led to charges against a Baltimore man named Umar Burley. But the case also was the first incident linking the Gun Trace Task Force to crimes of the past. As we've already discussed, the Gun Trace Task Force was a group of now eight officers who pled guilty to robbing residents, dealing drugs, and stealing overtime. But the original indictments dated back to 2016, which is why the case tied to Souter was so critical. It expanded the scope of the Gun Trace Task Force scandal, and even more troubling, the number of officers involved. Which brings us to the latest developments in the case, a report from the Independent Review Board that argues Souter committed suicide. The 127-page report was written by a group of former Baltimore homicide investigators and policing experts. It recounts in detail all the evidence its authors believe point to suicide. And so to break down the report and discuss the implications of the evidence, Tay and I are joined by award-winning investigative reporter for WBAL-TV, Jane Miller. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jane. 
this report has been controversial, but what evidence heavily is, discussed? That's heavily, for sure. Yes, yes, I think it's probably you know, and it's something of a ritual in Baltimore. Something happens with police, and then the report, and then everybody picks it apart. So, so it's like worldwide. It's yeah. like, are there other police departments in the world, or just this one? Okay, yeah, right. Okay. It's the so, center of our universe. Let's say, as as we well know, as we've recounted in this podcast, that you were the first person publicly to raise the um, you know idea that this could have been a suicide, but in a very famous press conference now with Commissioner. Or Kevin Davis, who pushed back on that. But just let's take this report at face value first. What parts of it do you think most likely point to or bolster the suicide theory uh, from the perspective of the report that was written? Well, I think two things are going on in the report that, um, and, and let, let's first of all talk about this. This was an independent review board. Yes. This was not an investigative, an investigative panel. In right. other words, they didn't go out and conduct their own investigation. They yeah. reviewed the case. And they reviewed the information that was gathered to that point. Some, in some cases, they did go and look at their own evidence to find out that there had been mistakes made. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but this was a review of right. of the investigation. Of the investigation that had already correct. occurred, not necessarily, you know, something that had, you know, legal sort of ramifications. Yes, right. very good point. So they they rely on two things. They rely on the physical evidence at the scene, and they rely on the link between. The, the timing of his death in November of 2017 to what was going on in the Gun Trace Task Force. And that, unbeknownst at the time, because it wasn't disclosed publicly, that Souter was um, in a lot of trouble, clearly. I mean, there yes. were indications he was in a lot of trouble. He yes. was, yes. this wasn't someone that was going to go before a grand jury as a witness. Yes. Uh, where they didn't have anything to worry about. This contrary, was, to, contrary to what Kevin Davis that is said correct. publicly. But that's we'll get right. to that. Yes, correct. But, but yes, he so, was in serious trouble. That's correct. So the, the report really relies on those two elements of this case, which is the physical evidence at the scene, shot with his own gun, no DNA, no evidence of a second person at all. They were they used the video that was shot from a camera down the street. I mean, this is at the yeah. other end of the block. But yeah, and, and it's interesting because it's not on the Bennett Place side. It's on a side street that goes up to the main street that crosses the front of the alley. Correct. Well, it's on the, no, it's on Bennett. The camera's on Bennett Place, but okay. it's across the street. Across the street. Oh, yes, it's on the other side. So the, yeah, like, so the it's on the. I think the. I think the shooting scene is on the even side of the street right, and this okay. was a house on the odd side or, or whatever, that, one or the other because right. I was it's confused the when I watched the let me just say that you know to our listeners that we will be posting this video on landoftheunsolved.com for people to look at so you can look at it for yourself but go ahead James you're talking they about they rely the on that video because Heavily. they argue right that that there were that the video shows that there were just eight seconds um, in which there was time for Souter to have an altercation with someone that ended in his death and get away clean. And, they point and, and very, the get away clean thing is really important. I mean, right. in order for someone to do this, you have to get away clean. Yeah. And this was not at, in the dark of night. This was 4.30 right. in the afternoon. It was daylight. Um, and so, the, but they rely on that video to to conclude that there just wasn't enough time for there to have been an altercation with someone else. And they point very specifically at a period of video that you can see if you watch it where there is a figure pacing in front of a van which they say if Souter was about to confront a suspect, he wouldn't be pacing. He would be in some sort of prone position. But, of course, it's very hard to tell who that is. I mean, if you watch the video, can you really make out who is in front of that van? Right. And what they're relying on there is um, his partner, David Bomenka's 
um, statements about right. because Bameka was with him. Right. And just so people know, Bameka was his partner, but he was his, not really his partner. He was just working with him that day. He was not and his the day before. Part. That's correct. And he was which not is actually normal. another part of the narrative in the report is mm-hmm. that um, that he picked Bameka. Bameka wasn't his regular partner. Bameka hadn't been in homicide that long. And told Bomanka that they needed to go look for this woman. Named Mary. Named Mary. And there's no record in the case file of a Mary. Related to a triple homicide or, yes. or a triple shooting. I don't know if it was a triple, triple homicide. homicide from the year before. An open case, correct. Yeah. Yes, right. So so that what they're really doing with the video is corroborating Bomanka's account. That's right. what they're doing. They're matching yeah. up. What do we know for sure? We know at X time that afternoon, David Bomanka called 911 to say... Something had happened to Sean Souter. That we know that that is documented. Right. Um, and so now you work back from that in terms of you can see him in the video. You see this figure right. wearing a trench coat, which right. is what he was wearing that day. Yes, running across the street. And so they're what they're doing is using the video as corroboration of his account and the time and creating a timeline and creating a timeline. So what is, what dilemma does the eight second if you if you buy into the the structure of the timeline, what does the eight second? How did they use the eight second to prove their case that it was suicide, or at least you know the circumstantial case that it was suicide? Simply that eight seconds isn't enough time to have a, a, a struggle over the gun, not leave your DNA or anything else on Suter or anywhere else to show that you were there. Um, shoot him, put the gun underneath him, or get lucky enough that you know when you dropped it, he fell on top of it. Either way. Um, and get the heck out of there without anybody seeing you. And they also, I think a very important point they make, and it was a close contact room, correct? Why yes. is that important? Well, close under protocols with coroners, um, anytime you have a scene where you have gun at the scene within arm's length, close contact wound um, to the skin, you immediately consider suicide because that's suggestive of, of a self-inflicted wound. In this case, the gun was underneath his body, Many investigators will say that was like a slam dunk, that right. it's suicide, because right. you would right. probably fall on top of your gun. Um, and then the, the close contact wound. I think it's really important, though, that we, we really should talk about what this report discloses okay. in terms of the um, mistakes and confusion from the beginning of the investigation. Yeah, it's, cl- it's fog of war, you know, you know exponentially expressed more and and then some and then some yes go ahead because you know so there were just many things that were that were just i guess mis misunderstood from the beginning that actually made their way into the public and and the homicide detectives were left in the dark not only misunderstood but misrepresented right in the relation to misled is the word that has been used (laughs) but i think think (laughs) more accurately stated was misrepresented because um, as Jane was, will discuss, you know, Commissioner Davis knew something was true and really lied about it. I think it. it it's I, fair to he say he did not disclose to the public what right. what he was. Yeah. What he so was told. What were According the big, to the report, he did not disclose to the right. public what he was told about Sean Souter's role in mm-hmm. the Gun Trace Task Force case. Right. So why don't you talk about uh, Jane? Just what, what things stand out in terms of what was you know what the information that got out that was actually incorrect. Well, there's no question, and I reported it at the time, that there was confusion over the entry wound of the bullet, which, you know, was yeah. later straightened out at autopsy. But what we now know is that at shock trauma, which is where Sean Suter was taken, the the report says that shock trauma personnel said the entry wound was on the left side of the head. 
Well, in, he's not left-handed, right. and in his in his left hand was his radio. So you can't shoot yourself while you're holding a your radio. While you're holding a your radio, unless you right. have some sort of elastic arm like a superhero. That well, can and just and head. wrap around your head. I mean, yeah. the whole nine yards. But, right. I mean, you know, but right. Jane, let me just now. Doesn't that strike you as amazing that that? I mean, how could they get that wrong? It, I agree. It's a great question. I've asked that question of shock trauma, and the answer has been we don't discuss patient condition. Which to my answer was this isn't about the condition no. of the patient. This, mm-hmm. this is about a decision and a judgment that was made by the hospital's personnel that set that investigation on right. course. Right. So obviously, when you have that information very early on, which you did um, within the that first 24-hour period, that was the information that the, the investigation was given, according to the IRB report, you're not looking at suicide. You're looking at some somebody else. But you know... It was interesting because I remember talking at the time to the mayor's people, and they were talking about all everyone being at the hospital with him. Correct. I mean, wouldn't you notice that? It, <laughs> I don't know that anybody I mean, saw it. His head was probably, you know. Well, his head was ex- was was in probably bad not shape. exposed. It was, right. Yeah, Correct. I guess so. Okay. It just it just strikes me as just a huge error. Well, so now we move ahead till the nineteenth. Now there, now we're five days later, and well, fifteenth to the nineteenth, um, at autopsy, according to the report. The coroner who was doing the autopsy says, okay, it's a right side, close contact, close contact, entry wound. Looks at the whoever from BPD was in the room and says, have you looked at suicide? Answer, no. Well, I'm wow. told by the board that's because they didn't know that there was a possibility of suicide. Mm-hmm. And that is according to the protocol of the medical examiner. Further complicating that first couple of days is that... Um, the coroner, a spokesperson for the medical examiner's office, has told us, and we have reported it, that the ME was not aware of Souter's role in the gun trace task force case. No one was, right? The, homicide the, wasn't? The, homicide, I right. hear the same thing, and the report says the same thing about homicide. That's right. That that information, which is certainly a critical piece of this case, absolutely, was just not divulged. To people that really needed to know it. Mm-hmm. And Tate, tell us a little about the Gun Trace Task Force. What, you know, we talked about it, but why was that important? Well, the Gun Trace Task Force was incredibly important, not only because it was eight officers that were indicted and criminally charged and convicted of crimes against the community, uh, not limited to theft, uh, extortion, right. drug dealing, theft of overtime. You name it. You name it. These officers were guilty of it. So these, the group of officers were essentially uh, operating as a gang above the law in Baltimore City. And essentially, Souter was considered possibly right. one of those officers. It- Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the the idea that the amount of pressure Souter would have been under, knowing that he was about to be taken before a federal grand jury, asked about his participation in these illegal activities, really changes the whole tenor of the situation when thinking about whether or not he was killed or whether or not he committed suicide from that pressure. Now, Jane, you were one of the people that broke the story about the case that Souter was tied to. What what case was that? Talk a little about this. So well, this people... wasn't the robbery of a drug dealer. Right. The 2010 case that Souter was called was going to testify about was one that he was involved in, mm. which was the traffic stop of two men, Umar Burley and Brent Matthews, who thought they were being robbed. And in fact, it was Wayne Jenkins, Sean Souter, and another officer by the name of Ryan Gwynn, who um, the, the two men in the car took off. The three officers chased them in two different cars. The two men ran through a 
intersection and hit a vehicle carrying an 86-year-old man, Albert Davis, who happens to be the father of a police officer, and his wife. Mr. Davis died. His wife was seriously injured. So the, the case at, and, the, and then the rest of the allegation is that after the crash, Jenkins ordered up drugs, drugs to be Delivered. planted in the car to justify the stop and the chase right. to begin with. Which we should point were delivered like a Domino's pizza. They were delivered from- by another person who has been named <laughs> in a civil lawsuit but was not charged. Yes. Um, all of those officers, other than Gwen, but the, the officer who delivered the goods, according right. to a civil lawsuit, who that officer is, whose name is Keith Gladstone, um, Souter, Jenkins, and other members of the Gun Trace Task Force who all worked together back and in the day. They were all known to each not. other. Right. So, the, so what's important about that 2010 case is, first of all, it involves the death of a person who was... If, if you look all through everything we know about the Gun Trace Task Force, there's one innocent victim, meaning he wasn't involved in drug trafficking right. Right. or some other you know, illicit activity. Yes. There's one innocent victim and Absolutely. it's Elbert Davis and he happened to be he, he happened to die as a result of the involvement of Jenkins and Souter and this other officer and what they had done originally so um, that was what he was being called to testify about he had been given limited immunity which means just as it says we're going to limit your immunity but all bits are off if you get to ask about other things you testify about other things right and that's always a very slippery slope in a grand Incredibly jury slippery. Yes. i mean there's tremendous fear you know going into a grand jury it, it could have been a trap for him you know i talked to people said they they probably knew stuff and they wanted to see what he was going to say and if he indeed knew his role in that then you can imagine the pressure and plus mondo gondo one of the other officers that said they've been robbing people going back to 2008 correct right, when they were in the western district when they're that's western correct district. and in fact they there are cases in the western district in 2008 in which Souter and gondo worked on together yeah. according to case search so, so yes so i mean this the thing about Souter that was so critical and and the thing the information was not given to the public jane was that from the onset commissioner davis knew about his his involvement and how serious trouble he was in but commissioner davis didn't tell anybody right that's what the IRB report What the says, IRB, excuse is me. That, yes, the IRB report says. Davis is somewhat contesting some of that. But yes, he is. Publicly is said that they're correct. wrong. Correct. But I'm sorry, but I should mention it. I can't imagine that, that the day after Sean Souter was shot, that in a meeting with the U.S. attorney, that there isn't a, a much of a, like a full disclosure going on about yeah. this is what was going to happen, you know, with, with this individual. And, um, for, you know, for whatever reason... The, the commissioner at the time, Kevin Davis, chose not to allow that to become part of the narrative of the case. Yeah. And it clearly would have been. the. Nar- it was already becoming a narrative of the case. It just wasn't public. Because but we, we all right. knew that this was, you know, there was something bubbling all around yes. about this. Um, and it was mischaracterized because Souter was, he was, he had been asked to speak to federal investigators, I believe, and he had refused and he had been subpoenaed. So it was not a case where he was cooperating, right? No, and I think it's very important that the IRB report, um, I mean, this is some of the stuff that, it, well, there's a lot in that report that was not known publicly. And Absolutely. one of them is that on October 24th, which is just three weeks before his death, the FBI um, approaches him to interview him. He refuses to be interviewed, and they then deliver the subpoena. The subpoena. Right. And at that time, according to the report, um, he asks, am I going to lose my job? Right. Now, the lawyer for the Souter family has publicly said that, you know, that's all irrelevant, and they're trying to paint a narrative that this was... But I think that 
to a reasonable person, it's very difficult to ignore um, what is going on in Sean Suter's life on November 15th, 2017. It it is a very big deal. He'd been on the force at that point. um, 17 years. 17 or 18 years. Not enough time to have a pension. No. He would have gotten a lump sum retirement back. Um, but but he would have had to pay legal fees, and he might have ended up in jail. I mean, it's not outside the realm of no, possibility. No, absolutely that he could not. Well, especially since what we know from the IRB report is that what Gondo told God, if you remember, what we now know about Mamadou Gondo is that he was talking. Yes, <laughs> right. he's still Almost talking. He mo- could still right. be talking, That's right? Exactly because right. he hasn't, he hasn't been, been sentenced, sentenced yet. That's right. Mamadou Gondo. Sorry, right. I called him Mamadou. Sorry, right. right. So, My fault. I mean, he was he was he was cooperating from the very early on and providing a lot of information. He testified not once but twice. He testified in a drug case. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he And and Souter knew that he had testified in that drug case because that happened October 25th. Right. See, so what so it's did, all what kind did, of building. You're, what it's did building. that tell you about Gondo? When he testified in that drug case, oh, he's a tell-all guy. He knows yeah, yes. a lot more than yes. we've known to this point. And I, that's a, that sends a, a big message to sure. someone that, well, what else does Gondo know? What else is he telling them? And, what, and more importantly, what else do the feds know? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Which is so you, what he didn't know. I mean, you know, right. he, you, you, people don't understand, like, one admission is like a felony. Yes. Right? And, correct. And, Jane, a felony and yes, not only correct. ends your career, puts you in jail, right? Well, you're in the federal system. Yeah, which so is no joke. So if you lie before a grand jury, it's it's perjury. You're, you're you know, and it's... It, Bad news. People have gone to federal prison for that. And you will right. never be a right. cop. That's that's ever. exactly right. It's that is not exactly like some right. of the stuff that happens on the local level. Now, Taya, all these lies, oh, well, let's say uh, misrepresentations, had a big impact on the community because what happened in Harlem Park shortly after Souter was, was shot? Well, the Harlem Park community was essentially locked down for six days. And essentially, they were under a crime scene kind of quarantine. Yeah, and six blocks. Six blocks. Um, and s- people had to show ID. They had to show papers to police officers to go in and out of the neighborhood. Uh, some people had difficulty receiving their mail or getting to work on time. People were stopped. People were searched. People even had warrant checks run on them. Yeah. Without so th- probable cause, according to the um, you know independent monitor. Exactly. Yeah. So when you think about the the stress that that community was placed under, not only was the community told that there might be a murderer on mm-hmm. the loose within their community, but they had police officers violating their civil liberties on a daily basis. So uh, Jane, what have been the main primary, I mean, what do you see as the flaws in this report, if any, or, or the holes in it that um, you know, because so, so we have, let's just review, we have, you know, Souter facing, uh, you know, a hostile federal investigators and one of the worst police scandals in, in U.S. history, I think is easy to say. At and this point. getting implicated in a case that involves the death of an innocent man. And, and that yes. would have a huge weight on most people's conscience. <laughs> Obviously, some didn't care. But I mean, if he was a man of conscience, um, you know, and he was set to testify the day before their text messages between him and his lawyer, his lawyer saying the text messages show he was not responding to him, which his lawyer has discounted, right? Saying it's no big deal or... What, they, they have diminished that, the impact diminished of that. that. But, the IRB puts a lot of weight on that. But they but they show text messages, and, and just before Souter commits suicide, his lawyer saying, what time are we getting together? Because he wanted to prepare for the testimony. And then, you know, you have the, the close contact wound, the fact that guns found under his body, no evidence about a, you know, a person who would have been attacked. But what, what do you see or what are people saying about this report that, that cast doubt on it? Suicide in, I've covered many, many, many yeah. cases with this conflict mm-hmm. of the homicide versus suicide. 
Um, I mean, I've said, I've, I covered a case 30 years ago where I actually witnessed a guy shoot himself. That's 100%. Wow. <laughs> Without that, you can always raise a question one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what does what the Souter case look like? It looks like one of three things. You either have him killing himself, you have him targeted by someone who wants his suicide, his murder to look like a suicide. Right. Souter wants his suicide to look like a murder. Right. I mean, that's what is kind of in play in this case. Right. And then, you know, what, what I think is very, very remote possibility is this is some random encounter because right. that, the least remote. Yeah, just yeah, at least just doesn't just, add up. It does, that doesn't add up. Which was would, what was it, initially suggested yes, by uh, Commissioner, yes, former Commissioner That's Davis, right. is that was a random encounter that it was someone that was perhaps considered a suspect, an African American male wearing a black shirt correct. with a white stripe, yes. from the community who committed this crime against this police officer. That's right. So that just seems to be the the remote. So if you want to, if you want to believe that he committed suicide, this report will do that for you. Mm. If you want to say no way. Then you will pick it apart by saying you didn't interview his family. Um, There's no okay. information in there about finances or anything like that. How do you know what his state of mind was? You didn't look at state of mind. That is a good point. They did not um, subpoena his computer, his personal computer, which, you know. That's because, again. They didn't think. At the time. Right. And that they was thought, critical. As you were saying absolutely. before, you had four or five days where the actual homicide four, detective right, right. did not, not know the We're not aware evidence. that this looked like self-inflicted. Yeah. Correct. And, so they and and that there may have been a personal aspect of his life that really weighed heavily on the case. Now, one which thing is we, the is the testimony issue. One thing I'm gonna there was one really weird piece of evidence. I'm going to play it right now. It was a recording from or it was a transmission from Suter's radio. Um, I'm just gonna play it and then I want to ask you guys about it. Hold on. So let's hear it. All right, so is anything, can you clean anything? I mean, it's very weird. IRB that took nothing from that. Took nothing from that. And Taya, you listened to it. Did you hear anything? It was impossible to distinguish any words. Right. And, and it's, honestly, it's kind of chilling to know that those are the last few moments I know, moments it is, it is if anything, it's chilling. But with the IRB... It could be a lot of things. It could be him... At, at the same time, if he killed himself, at the same time he's pulling the trigger is the yeah. is the jolt, <laughs> right? You know? Reaction or to the correct. muscle spasm Just in his hand, tensing before he shoots him. But the IRB said he put his hand on the ground, right? Were they saying he had put his hand on the ground and kneeled? Excuse me, I'm moving from the mic. I don't know why I'm doing that because, but put his hand on the ground and kneel. And when he put his hand on the ground to kneel to shoot himself, the, the radio just went off. It. Made a right. key for a second, right? So that that doesn't tell you anything really. But but getting back to your point. Um, you know, is there any type of theories that have emerged that would counter the evidence that he killed himself? You know, I mean, we were talking about going down a rabbit hole, but of course, the Baltimore Police Department is at this point officially a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, um, and yeah, you know, would and agree with that. This is what, and this is one of the reasons I, I started this podcast because you know we talked about suicides, like the suicide of Robert Clay, which we'll be talking mm-hmm. about Correct. in a couple months. Um, a guy who a very well known contractor who walked down the mm-hmm. stairs, supposedly shot himself in the head. These cases, whether it's the city or whatever, just never seem to be resolved. Like Th- these cases know. that have this question are very difficult to resolve. They, they, there's the case of um, the Illinois police officer who, mm. oh right, a couple of years ago, who you know um, tr- set up his suicide to make it look like murder. Yes, and that it was a it was the coroner in that case that started to. 
um, you know, kind of let the real cat out of the bag in terms right. of the of the gunshot wound, the fatal gunshot wound. And so it, it generally they what happens is the evidence starts to lean one way or the other. And then it just stays there. There's, it's very difficult to resolve cases in which someone wants an act to look like something else. Absolutely. So that means, I mean, I, you have to ask, you know, when people say, well, you know, he didn't, wasn't talking to you, he'd tell his wife he's going to, you know, anything was wrong. That's Nobody true. knows anything, da 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 Well, A, we don't know that. We don't know what, what really went on. But, no. But right. if, you're, if you really want your suicide to look like murder, you're not going to say a word to anybody. Absolutely. Because no. you can't leave that trail. And there is a benefit to his family. There's a huge benefit it's an enormous if, he, if he's a death in the line here. of duty. Could you, I mean, I looked into it. Do you know anything about that? Or yes. I mean, I can talk, but go ahead. Yeah. So I am told by folks who know these benefits that if it is line of duty death, his wife would get his salary, which was last in FY 2017, was um, 78000 She would get that tax-free for life. Wow. wow. Plus health care benefits paid for by the city. Plus... A total of about four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars upfront payments between a city payment, a federal payment, and a state payment. I think there's also some other benefits to the children. Well, there's tuition. T- tuition, so it's full tuition. Full, any that's any state school. Any state school right. for and he's got five children, so you could add another half million to that because they could go to any school they wanted. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely an there's incentive. millions of dollars at stake. Definitely an incentive. Oh no, absolutely. And and if it's a suicide r- ruling, then. Um, none of those benefits. Right. I mean, there is a question. I've talked to some police police officers who say if it's a suicide in the line of duty related to stress, you can you make some argue argument, it. but you're yeah. not going to get the state benefits like the like the tuition and stuff. You're not going and the tax rate. Right. It's not going to happen. No, this so. will be a this will be a fight. I mean, there's yeah. no question that um, that if if something happens that would change the posture of the case. I, I, there will be a fight, I'm sure. Has there been any indication from the medical examiner's office, because you've spoken to them, that they're going to re-examine this case? They are re-examining the case. Um, right. They have said that through a spokesperson, that they are reviewing the case. They have the report. Because um, that could be wait, critical. They they yes. told me in July that if the report presented information that required a change in the ruling, they would do it. Um, it'll be interesting to see. You know, the safe route for them would be, let's go to pending. Or undetermined. Undet- no, un- no. Listen, let's just say this right now: undetermined, which is a fifth manner death, which is the fa- infamous Baltimore ruling. Right. You know, it's not homicide, accident, suicide, right. or natural causes, but just hey, we don't know. We and don't we're know. Not so let's say- label it that <laughs> right. as such. And right. Although it been- does give you a lot of flexibility, and it does <laughs> yeah. give you the opportunity to absolutely, you know, reopen. Absolutely. The case, um, but as we've to, seen in the past, it's become more of like just put it over here in this statistical Correct. category, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's my prediction. They'll move yeah, it into maybe. undetermined. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what they do. They yeah. may stick with their original ruling. That would be interesting to see that in the face of this 200-page report well, that comes to a different conclusion. Let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. Do you think that there's any? With, with you seen the video, do you think there's room for a person, a police? You know, one of the things that Neil Franklin, a former police officer, said to us was that Souter was self-directed that day. So for someone to meet him and kill him, it would be very difficult. They, they had to know where he's going and, and trail him. Of course, we don't know because we haven't seen all the evidence. But do you think there's room for the conspiracy theory that he was killed by police in in the evidence? Man, I'll tell you what, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I I won't rule out anything in Not this in case because well, even <laughs> in any anywhere. Yeah, because again, there's no witness to the actual shooting that we know of. Um, and the, all the evidence, the physical evidence that we know of, all suggests that it was self-inflicted. There's no question about that. Yeah. 
you know, people knew that he was going to testify the next day. Somebody knew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, somebody knew that he was, you know, in, involved in this. I mean, it, was, it, it should probably known in the department that this was well, a lot of stuff that was bang, banging around the department. In terms, there were of other this officers case. we've right. been told who received uh, subpoenas to testify, one, including one one of the Baltimore County officers who just resigned, who was implicated, was mm-hmm. also subpoenaed. So, so there was the a only... lot of chatter going on. Yeah, so there, it, it was wouldn't have been um, a, secret. A, a secret that mm-hmm. that he may have been implicated. And I, I know that I mean I had heard that some of the other officers that were never charged that were named, et cetera, had been talking about their contact with the federal authorities, et cetera. So mm. there was a lot going on in the in the department internally um, at that time. Again, the timing is critical yeah. because it's it's happening. His death comes at a time when a lot was going on in the case right. with people pleading guilty and cooperating. The Jenkins indictment in the drug planting case hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Jenkins was under indictment in the original case, but the, not in the 2010 Omar case. Omar Burley, that was just starting. That that was just, that that's exactly right. That yeah. was still going on at that time. Um, there was also the indictment um, of Eric Snell, who's the Philadelphia police officer mm-hmm. who used to be in BPD, who's implicated in the case. He's the still pending bondsman. trial. The bail bondsman. The bail bondsman. Um, that was being discovered around the same time. So anything so, could yeah. happen at that point. Right. It was a very active time in that investigation. And right smack in the middle of it, you have the sudden death by gunshot of a witness who is about to testify under immunity. I mean, that's how do you ignore that? You can't ignore it. You just can't ignore it. You have talked to lots of people. You know, what is a community? But there's been a lot of skepticism in the community about this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, People who I've spoken to in the community still believe that uh, Detective Sean Suter was murdered. Uh, By the police department. By the Baltimore City Police Department. Let's be clear. When they say that, they're not saying that. Right. They're not saying that it was uh, an unknown suspect in the blackjack with a white stripe that killed Sean Suter. People believe that it was an inside job, that a member of the Baltimore City Police Department, perhaps even member of the Gun Trace Task Force, set up Baltimore, uh, set up Sean Suter to be killed because they were concerned about what he would have to say in front of that grand jury. And I think because of the lack of trust between the community mm-hmm. and the Baltimore City Police Department, I think many community members aren't going to trust this new information. They don't believe the information that they've already been given. They believe that uh, Commissioner Kevin Davis has misrepresented things. And yeah. I think they're still going to believe that even despite this report that Sean Suter was killed by one of his fellow police officers. And I doubt anyone's going to be able to change their mind. Is that, Jane, a barometer of... Is this case... Is in this case, in a way, a barometer of the lack of trust with the Baltimore Police Department and the community? You know, I was I was thinking, if you just look at the last three years, okay, so we had the Freddie Gray case, and, you know, we went through the trials of those officers, and all this information came out about, you know, the lack of following procedure and practice and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. And what, right. So the result of that, though, was the DOJ report. And the DOJ report resulted in the consent decree. All of that is a positive to getting to a better place mm-hmm. in policing in this city in terms of court-ordered reforms that have to do with unconstitutional arrests and stop and seizure practices and treatment of, of individuals in the community. Um, then we get to the GTTF case, which is, you know, all became public in the spring of 2017. Mm-hmm. Another 
bad, bad, bad episode. Absolutely. But officers were indicted, held to account, prosecuted. Thanks to the prosecuted. feds. Thanks to the federal feds. That's right. right. Not, and thanks not, to a wiretap case. Yeah. That's right. Um, not the Baltimore Police Department policing itself. No, should correct. be made clear. Right. That's right. Um, and they now sitting in federal prison, about to go to prison. So there's there was pretty dramatic consequence of all of that. When you get to the Souter case, it's a it's a conundrum in terms of how do you get get someplace better in terms of credibility. The report is very Scaling. critical of the mm-hmm. lack of transparency from the police command and Kevin Davis at that time, and he's obviously very defensive about that and has mm-hmm. been really criticizing the report. But um, but it he, they really criticize the lack of honesty about this investigation because it it led the community to to an expectation um and the expectation was that you know this is some cold-blooded whatever mm-hmm. and member of the community correct or yeah that well yeah that's um, I mean, exactly that's what, what it was davis, at the beginning davis right. was clear in his in his implication yes. it wasn't even an implication that it was someone in the community yes. and the way he and he was being protected by some nurse and all yeah. kinds of stories and the rhetoric right. was very right. incendiary because he correct. was like some criminal from the community shot and killed a homicide detective just doing his job correct so there so what wasn't present in all of that was this kind of pullback to say you know we've developed other information we have we really need now to figure out what happened. Is this, you know, just to be much more honest about it. I, I was listening to a news conference on December 27th, 2017, one of Kevin Davis's last news conferences because he was fired not too long after that. On that date, now think of all the things he knows by that time. He's still saying there oh, is, yeah. quote, zero evidence of suicide. Absolutely. Now, okay, that wasn't right. true. <laughs> you Absolutely. have physical evidence in this case that is Absolutely. highly and suggestive. Circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And circumstantial. And circumstantial. Yeah. That's right. You have circumstantial and physical evidence that is highly suggestive of it being self-inflicted. And, and so you just can't blame the community for being skeptical. I mean, and, and this is the problem. I mean, the report was, it, it, what Jane, you point out, and, and Taylor, you point out, the, the, this, the Baltimore Police Department was under a consent decree for unconstitutional practices when it locked down the neighborhood, when Correct. Davis made these statements. Correct. If the federal government's watching you and you behave this way, what hope is there for I, reform? I, I can't even Good imagine question. what the next quarterly report, in fact, they're meeting on... Um, you mean the, um, the, mo- the monitoring monitors? Team. Yeah. Yes, well, the last correct. one was scathing because they said, yes. this is what they said. After 36 hours, there was no evidence of an assailant in the neighborhood. Right. No evidence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Correct. And the police department, to my knowledge, has not answered the question, why did you continue to lock down the neighborhood? The only thing I can think of is because Davis was still delusional or whatever. And as you said, he's denied this, but he still felt like he wanted to prove. Right. You know, he, perhaps he wanted to keep up the appearance. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, I think this case is exemplary of just how bad things are and how difficult it will be to, to change it. So, Well, in fact, at, uh, regarding the lockdown of Harlem Park, um, at the last... Uh, public meeting, public hearing on the consent decree, one of the monitoring team members told the judge that in 2016, as a result of, you know, the, the Freddie Gray case and the DOJ report and the consent decree, et cetera, that they were working on at that time, that um, they changed their policies about stop, search, and arrest. And they got to November 15th, 2017, and the lockdown of Harlem Park and didn't follow any of it. No. Nope. So, the, the, what does that suggest to a, a judge like a James Bradar that's overseeing this consent decree? It's like, wow, how are we going to fix this? Absolutely. Uh, 
And and the IRB report deals with the Harlem Park lockdown by referring to the yes in, um, the monitoring monitors. team and the yeah. and the consent decree work on it and the what they found because they really looked at it very thoroughly. Well, mm-hmm. um, we're going to wrap it up there. But um, Taya, thank you for joining us. Of and, course. Well, thank you for working on this with me, Jane Miller, award-winning investigative reporter. Your work on this has been fundamental to revealing the truth to the public. Yes. We appreciate that. Stay tuned. Um, uh, you know, this is, this story is <laughs> yes. this story is not closed. So. Yes, we will on the land of the unsolved. <laughs> continue to follow this case. If there are new yes. developments, we'll bring you more developments. We'll so, you. Um, you know, we will be getting to our next podcast series on the murder of Jody Le Cornu, which will be broadcasting. Well, we'll be podcasting pretty soon. So thank you all for joining us on Land of the Unsolved. Taya, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Jane. Okay. All right. <laughs>